Stories connect us. They build empathy and understanding across difference. Stories are the basic building blocks of community. If you are brave enough to share your story and have the empathy to listen. But when was the last time someone really listened to you or you listened to someone else? Each episode, we choose a theme and stories from our archives of thousands of stories collected using the Facing Projects model. Every story you hear was produced by two people who took the time to listen and share and collaborate on a monologue told from one of their lived experiences. People who listened instead of judged. What if we all sought to understand? This is The Facing Project. Hello, everyone. I'm J.R. Jameson. And I'm Kelsey Timmerman. And we're the founders of The Facing Project. J.R., do you remember the project with the lawyers? I do remember the project with the lawyers. It was months of our time on the phone with them and, and going through stories. Yeah. I mean, when lawyers are reading your stories for a facing project, that takes some effort and there's a lot of hurdles to jump. So this project was at a school that we won't name. It was Facing Sexual Violence, which can be a touchy subject on a college campus. And the lawyers actually read the stories to scrub out the words dorm and fraternity. Uh, fraternity. And uh, there were many times I didn't think the project was going to happen. Yeah, I didn't either. But the reason that it happened, there was two young women who were leading the project who were survivors of sexual assault themselves. And they just made it happen. They were not going to give up. When one of them would lose hope, they couldn't continue on. The other one would step up. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah, and I was most amazed one of the young women was a sophomore in college. She was 19 years old. And as much as the administration said, we don't want this project to come go forward, as much as the attorneys or lawyers said, we need to scrub the stories, and as much as other students on the campus said, this doesn't happen here, and we don't want to believe these stories, at 19, she she wouldn't back down, and she said, no, these stories need to be told. We were on campus for a day, so they invited us to come in and speak, and I remember all the negative feelings and feedback that were directed at us, just like people question us why why we're supporting this project and, and I can only imagine what it was like for them to have gone through what they had gone through and to take that project on. And then do you remember one of the most powerful moments was after the project was completed we sat down with the two young women and one of them read a story to us from the project and she said that's my story. Yeah, right. Right. I, we didn't know that going into it. Right no. after it, I mean, it was no. a heavy. It was like a heavy story. Yeah. And she said, "That's my story," and it's just like, ooh. And that stayed with me. I'll never forget that. And I always think about how close we became with them during that process. And I knew going into it that they were survivors of sexual assault, but to actually then hear that story and for her to read it to us. I mean, just gutted me in so many ways. And it's something that I will never forget anytime I interact with anyone who has been uh, sexually assaulted or has a story to share. And it's like, what what made them be able to do that, right? And, and mm-hmm. I think what it comes down to 
is that they know how alone they felt in the, those, that reality mm-hmm. and to gain hope in the stories of other people. I think that is why they wanted to share these stories. They wanted to make people aware that this is happening. Yeah. And that's important because today's theme is finding strength in your own story. The stories you're about to hear are personal narratives of two individuals who have dealt with abuse. These stories are hard to hear and may trigger emotional trauma and abuse survivors. Listener discretion advised. Dear Mom and Dad, An anonymous story as told to Jeff Perry from Facing Sex Trafficking in Atlanta, Georgia. Performed by Drew Vidal. Dear Mom and Dad, There were two defining moments from my childhood that molded me into the person you see before you. The first was the exact moment I knew I liked boys the way I was supposed to like girls. The summer between my 6th and 7th grades, I played on a kid's summer football league. During a scrimmage one day, a teammate was tackled and I was there to help him up. I clearly remember my left hand grasping his as if we were going to arm wrestle and my right hand cupping his tricep to pull him up. I didn't know what gay was at the time, but I sure knew I liked the feeling of touching his arm. Perhaps this boy acknowledged the same feeling in me or even himself because when school started that fall, he and his friends bullied me. One by one, my friends started distancing themselves. Some dropped me altogether. I was no longer worthy of their friendship. The second moment wounded me so deeply that I spent most of my life trying to climb out of that dark place. In eighth grade, I stepped outside of my comfort zone and tried out for chorus. The teacher, Mr. Melvin, had a reputation of being strict, demanding, and mean. I had trouble hitting one particular note during rehearsal for our Christmas concert. Mr. Melvin singled out a group of us to sing the line one by one. It was my turn, and I couldn't hit the note. One note. I was yelled at, called names, and told to get out in front of the whole class. From this point on, I remember feeling like I wasn't good enough. I retreated into myself when I should have been soaring and discovering who I was. A teacher who was supposed to encourage me to do the things I thought were out of reach had stripped me of the little confidence I had left. By now, I had come to terms with being gay, but I still felt different, alone, and most of all, unworthy of love. I desperately needed people on my side, so I turned to you. Mom, Dad, I said. I have something to tell you. I'm gay. You never truly know the reaction you're going to get, but you hope of all people, your parents will be understanding, compassionate, and most of all, loving. I struck out on all counts. 
what you spewed at me was unimaginable. Dad called me faggot. Sissy, homo, and every other vile slang there was for being gay. Not being ready for his reaction, I stood there with tears streaming down my face, begging and pleading with him to listen to me. Mom, you wanted no part of me. Or what I was saying. You told me I was a disappointment to you and God and unworthy of your love and that I was no longer welcome in your house. But I'm 15, I argued. Where am I supposed to go? You said, we don't care and you have 15 minutes to leave the house. I packed some clothes into a duffel bag and walked out of our house for the last time and onto the streets to fend for myself. At only 15 years old, I had to figure out how to survive. I was scared, confused, hurt, and angry that the ones who were supposed to be there for me and love me no matter what could be filled with such hate for me. I wasn't your little boy anymore. What was I going to do? I started hanging out at the train station and quickly learned that the older men coming and going found me attractive. There was an older man, Mac, who started talking to me, bringing me food, giving me a few dollars on occasion. At first, this attention was not only nice, but welcomed. He lived alone and offered me shelter in his spare bedroom. I felt like I had a friend, someone who cared about me. I didn't understand nothing is free, and it wasn't long before Mac was requesting sexual favors of me. The more I did for him, the more I got from him. Clothes, shoes, some cash, and a place to live. But only while Mac was at home. During the day while he was at work, I was dropped off at the same train station where we met. Just as I got comfortable, things changed. Mac saw how other men flirted with me and how I responded to the attention. He decided he could make money off of me, so he started setting up dates between me and his buddies. I didn't want to, but I was told if I didn't cooperate, he would call the police on me. I wasn't sure what he would tell them, but I was too terrified to find out, so I kept my mouth shut and did as I was told. By this time, it was clear that Mac didn't care about me. I could see it in his eyes. He no longer saw me as a person. I was nothing more than an object he controlled and used as he wanted for his personal gain. I lived, well, survived through three more years of being sexually abused for his financial gain. Just after my 18th birthday, I met Eric. Eric was in his early 20s and worked at trying to get kids like me off the streets. At first, I wanted no part of him or his promises. I barely trusted myself, let alone a stranger. 
For weeks, Eric found me and tried gaining my confidence. Of course, I kept this from Mac. After four months, I took Eric up on his offer and found myself in a homeless shelter with nothing more than the clothes on my back. Abuse isn't just physical. Mom and Dad, your words were abusive, hurtful, and have had a deep and long-lasting effect on how I love myself. Even though I wasn't physically abused, I sometimes wished I was, rather than suffer years of those hateful words. The scars left weren't skin deep, and they were not easy to get over. They ran deep into my soul and forever changed how I feel about myself. But at some point, I had to ask, where does acceptance and forgiveness begin? I learned it had to begin with me. So, now I stand before you a changed person. Once crippled by insecurity, self-doubt, and a self-hatred no human should ever feel, I am starting to believe I am enough. Love your son. According to the Trevor Project, nearly 2 million teens are thrown into the streets each year by their own families for being themselves. These kids make up 40% of the overall homeless population, and sadly, 45% of them end up selling their bodies for sex just to survive. LGBTQ teens who come from families who reject them, or feel that they can be changed, are eight times more likely to commit suicide than their straight counterparts. You are not alone. Annie's story, as told to Carly Scaff from Safety in Love in Muncie, a facing project, performed by Christy Inman. I'm not an open book about my story, but when the time's appropriate, I'll share. If I had known other people's stories, it would have made me feel less alone during a time of extreme emotional turmoil. I want you to know you're not alone. I was 16 when I met him at a music festival. It was the summer before my sophomore year of high school. We had mutual friends and we hit it off immediately. But there were red flags from the start. I was dancing with other guys at the festival and the next morning I got a text from him. You're a slut. Just wait until I get done telling everyone what you are. You would think that would have made me stop talking to him. But I think I was just so enthralled by the fact that somebody wanted me. That was the first time somebody acted like they were madly in love with me, and I fell in love so quickly. The relationship was always manipulative, but it progressed so fast, it was hard for me to see it. One time he called me and tricked me into thinking I had given him an STD because I had cheated on him, but I had never cheated on him. He was my first partner. But I didn't know anything, so I believed him, and I thought I must have given him an STD. I was heartbroken. Then another text. I don't have one. I was just trying to see if you were cheating on me. Yeah, he would do stuff like that. 
But in between, the love was hot and heavy. We talked about getting married, and I was blinded by that. We dated for only six months, but to me, it felt like a lifetime. The physical violence didn't start until homecoming weekend. At my school, we had homecoming football game on Friday night, and then the big dance on Saturday. After the football game, we went to a park to hang out. I thought we were just going to talk, but he wanted to have sex. I kept saying no. Then he shoved me and started strangling me. He said, if you don't have sex with me, I'm going to kill you. He punched me in the face so hard I saw stars. I just remember screaming and crying for my mom. She kept calling me because it was past my curfew, but he wouldn't let me answer my phone. He kept me there for three hours. I couldn't get away. I survived by going along with it, saying, I'm sorry, I'm an awful person. That's why he eventually let me go. When I got home, my mom was pissed I had missed my curfew. I was too embarrassed to tell her what had happened. She thought I was crying because I had missed my curfew. She had no idea I was crying because I was so happy to be alive. That night, I turned on the shower and sat on the edge of the bathtub, bawling. The next day, I woke up and sent him a message. Don't you ever do that to another female again. That was the most repulsive, disgusting thing ever. His response, what are you talking about? What do you mean? I told him what he did and he said, Annie, what are you talking about? That never happened. We literally just hung out in the park and then went home. He just kept pushing that and pushing that until I was so confused and began to doubt myself. So I went ahead and went to the homecoming dance with him that night, thinking I'd just get through the dance and then figure it out. I was still in shock, unsure how to process it. My grandma asked me why I had a black eye while I was getting ready. I told her I had tripped and fallen. Everyone was drinking at the homecoming dance. That's when the emotions started to hit me. Oh crap, what the hell am I doing? I started going up to people crying, asking for help, but he just called me a drunk, telling people I had taken a Xanax before I drank and that's why I was acting weird. I hadn't. He got us a cab and when we got home, I tried to break up with him. We were so close to my house, practically at my front door, but then he punched me in the face so hard I almost blacked out. He kicked me and then dragged me in my homecoming dress and everything into this alley by my house. Annie, he said, if I had a knife right now, I'd stab you and kill you. Fight or flight kicked in. I kicked off my heels and ran for my life to the front door of my house and rang the doorbell a thousand times. My mom let me in and I told her to call the police. But they didn't really help at all. I was only able to get an emergency order of protection because my uncle has connections. But then I still went back to him. I used to blame myself for it, but a lot of girls in abusive relationships go through that. My mom and my family were begging me to stay away from him, but I saw him in secret. I still thought I was in love with him. Honestly, it was always going to take me and only me to end the relationship. Eventually, my heart caught up with my brain and my disgust for him. I broke up with him in February for good, but he wouldn't go away. He started doing creepy stuff like friending all my family members on Facebook and leaving flowers at my house. So we took him to court. My mom and dad were both there with me. 
When the judge granted the restraining order, my sense of relief was enormous. I finally felt safe. For a little while, he would still try to show up around my school, and every time it upset me. Even when he stopped coming around, my recovery was by no means finished. Several months after the abuse, I couldn't swallow my food when I ate. I choked on almost everything and would often cough it back up. It wasn't until I went to see a therapist that I realized the choking was the PTSD symptom from being strangled. My doctor started me on EMDR therapy. It changed everything. Through that technique, I was able to replace my bad memories, in a way, with strong, safe thoughts. I still suffer from PTSD. I'm sure I'll always have remnants of it, but it's gotten so much better. The therapy influenced what I want to study, too. I'm a psychology and women's and gender studies major now. I want to be trained in EMDR and help people like me. I want to help people get out of that twisted mindset I had because it isn't real. Love shouldn't hurt. Love doesn't hurt. Like I said before, I don't share my story with everyone, but when you need help, when you go through a similar situation, I want you to know you're not alone. I'm in awe of those storytellers and how brave they were to share those stories, just like the organizers at the university that ran the Facing Sexual Violence Project, just the strength that it takes. Yeah, and stories around sexual violence or sex trafficking are heavy and they're really hard to hear. And the important thing is that there are people who need to hear these stories so that they can find their own strength from them as well. And the only thing that we want to leave everyone with is to love your children and one another. To find the strength in your story and the story of others, we've now made it easier than ever to participate in the Facing Project. Visit us online at facingproject.com to learn how to submit a story that will become part of our national archive and could have the potential to be featured on this radio program. This is where you can also find other Facing Project stories and how to start a full-fledged Facing Project in your community. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash thefacingproject. The Facing Project show is produced by Sean Ashcraft from Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, and directed by Laura Williamson and Michael Dane, with editorial assistance provided by Amory Orchard. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jameson. Until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Mm-hmm.